He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We're in the third week of a seven-part sermon series in the book of Acts, um, entitled Living in the Power of the Resurrection. You could add by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at Acts chapter 3 and 4 in particular, this episode where Peter and John heal a 40-year-old man who has been lame from birth. And then they proceed to claim that this healing is in the name and by the power of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you can remember just weeks prior to this, Jesus of Nazareth is precisely the one that the Jewish religious leaders and the the Roman political powers sought to crucify and bury him in a tomb and seal it with uh, a rock and guard it with guard, with soldiers because they did not want Jesus of Nazareth gaining any more momentum in the ancient world. And so when all of a sudden you get Peter and John saying that Jesus of Nazareth is alive, not only is he alive, but his healing power is being unleashed in the world in un- unforeseen and unexpected ways. It causes quite a stir in the streets of Jerusalem. So the religious leaders come out again. We've got to squash this. Peter and John are arrested. They're interrogated, and they're told to be silent or else there's going to be consequences. And that's where we pick up our story again in verse 23 of chapter 4. They're released by the religious authorities because they can find nothing wrong with them, technically, legally speaking, even though they want them to be quiet. Immediately, Peter and John go to their friends, to their fellow Christian believers, followers of Jesus. They report to them what the leaders have said, and then they turn to the Lord in prayer and seek to live out their faith in concrete generosity. Now, the question that our our passage today poses to us is, how did the early Christians navigate life in a culture that was hostile, or at least incredulous, to the name of Jesus? How did the early Christians navigate life in a culture that was hostile to their faith? And Luke gives us two answers. In verses 24 to 31, he says they prayed. And then in verses 32 to 37, he says they live generously. So first they pray. And, and, and Luke wants us to see in particular how the early church prayed. When hostility came their way, they filled their hearts and minds and imaginations with sweet thoughts of God's glory and his power and his dominion. They begin, sovereign Lord. It's a word used in the New Testament most often to describe the relationship of a master towards his servants or his subjects. It's a word that denotes one possessed of supreme power and final authority over another person or thing. But as the, as the, apostles, as the apostles pray, we realize right away that, that the sovereign Lord they address is not some tyrannical, arbitrary power. He is the sovereign Lord, the Lord and giver of life. In verse 24, he is the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. He's the sovereign Lord of creation. In verse 25, he's the one who spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father, David. And then it quotes Psalm 2, saying, saying God speaks to his people personally, intimately. He is the sovereign Lord of revelation. And then verses 27 to 28, they say God is not an arbitrary power that just does random things in history. No, he is at work through all the twists and turns of history, guiding it wisely to his redemptive purposes. They say in verses 27 and 28, you know, people were against Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet when in those weeks of, in those moments of Holy Week, 
God was orchestrating things to do whatever his hand and plan had predestined to take place. So not only is he the sovereign Lord of creation and revelation, he is the sovereign Lord of history. And so what this does for the apostles and the disciples as they contemplate this aspect of God is it turns their hearts and minds from fixating on their circumstances and the hostile culture around them to once again contemplating God's goodness and his wisdom and his power, which is at work in their circumstances. One of my, uh, one of the theologians that I really like, modern theologian, her name is Catherine Sonderager. She has this lovely quote about God's omnipotence, his power. She says this, the omnipotence of God overspreads the whole earth, holding it in being, and even more, holding it in his goodness. The humble power of God, she says, is an expression of God's benevolence, a holy goodness that radiates out into the good earth. Then she says this marvelous thing. She says, we do not begin to grasp the first thing about divine power if we do not first recognize it as a form of divine goodness itself, end quote. You see, for the early Christians, it was God's omnipotent goodness that animated their prayers, that enabled them to see their, their circumstances as bad and hostile and unfortunate as they were, as not pure fate or, or arbitrary circumstance, but as a profound opportunity to experience the redemptive presence and goodness of God. And as they pray, there are two opportunities that the early church particularly prays into. And the first is this opportunity to bear witness to the truth. When faced with hostility and opposition, the early church wants to bear witness to the, to the truth. And so they pray in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Speak your word with all boldness. I, I quickly learned from my time in ministering to university students in Canada, which is kind of a profoundly post-Christian or, or secular society in many respects. I quickly learned that it, it's often those that are most outwardly hostile to Christ who are actually uh, closest to experiencing his healing truth often. It's a bit counterintuitive. But I think one of the reasons is because they were genuinely engaged with the claims of who Jesus is in his gospel. This was revealed in the fact that they felt some offense at who he was and what he was saying, and they were actually wrestling with it. And so I quickly discovered in a post-Christian kind of secularized society, one of the most dangerous spiritual realities is not outward hostility to Christ, although that's not good, <laughs> but actually just apathy towards Christ. Like, what difference does it really make? And one of the things that's so fascinating about, about the early church is that when they were faced with hostility, they prayed not that they would be protected, not that they would be safe, not that, you know, any of those sorts of things, although that wouldn't be bad, but they prayed that God would give them more boldness to proclaim the truth about Jesus to the world. And I think this is really fascinating in a time. I often hear people quote St. Francis of Assisi, although it's kind of hard to find him actually quoting this anywhere, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I kind of understand where this is coming from, because we live in, in a world where a lot of Christian churches, uh, talk has become cheap. Like, they say a lot of things to society, but don't often back it up with concrete action and sacrificial love. 
And so I understand what people are saying here. But, you know, in one sense, this quote couldn't be further from the spirit of, of the New Testament and the early church in Acts. There was this sense in the early church that we have good news for the entire world, for every person in it. So, Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the truth whenever possible. So that's one of the first things that, that the early church prays into, these opportunities when we're facing hostility to proclaim the truth of God's word. But second, they also pray. They see the hostility as an opportunity for people to experience God's healing touch where they really need it. If there's hostility to Jesus, there is divine healing needed there. And so as they speak the word in boldness, they also ask in, in verse 30 that God would stretch out his hand to heal and that he would accompany his words with signs and wonders performed in the name of Jesus. So you see here that when they're faced with hostility, the early church, uh, they want to hear the spoken truth and they want to feel the healing power of God unleashed into the world. I was given a vivid reminder, a vivid image of God's healing touch um, this last week. Um, some of you may have heard that, you know, a few months ago, my mother was um, diagnosed with cancer for her kind of her third bout of, of cancer over the last 20 years. And, and don't worry, she's doing well. Uh, she, had, she had surgery about a month ago, and, and this last week she started radiation treatment. And uh, my mom was just ready to get this done over with. But one of the things she was excited about is, is how can I bear witness to Jesus, um, to my doctors, to all the medical professionals and team that are, that are caring for me? But as she had her first day of radiation, she actually found herself kind of overcome with this fear. The doctor is constantly having to move her body, position her body just one millimeter that way, two millimeters that way to make sure that the radiation hit the tumor and not like her heart or her lung or something like that. And it was a profound thing that the next morning, my mom woke up to a phone call from a lady in her church. And she goes to a church of like five or 6,000 people. So people do not know everybody. <laughs> this person did not know um, my mom had cancer at all. And this woman called her and said, you know what? I had a dream last night. I don't know why. I had a dream of you laying in a radiation machine and Jesus behind the machine with his hands on the machine, guiding it one millimeter, two millimeters at a time. And it was this profound reminder for my family, for my mom, that the Lord not only wants us to experience the truth of his word in our lives, but he also wants us to experience the power of his healing presence and touch. So how was it that the early Christians navigated life in a culture that was hostile to their faith? They prayed. They soaked their hearts and minds in, in, in big thoughts of God's sovereign lordship. They asked for courage to speak the word of God with boldness, and they asked God to accompany his truth with his healing presence and touch. And then we're told in our passage in verses 32 to 37, the sort of life that flows out of this way of praying we discover that the sort of life that flows out of this way of praying is a life of radical generosity. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed, meaning every Christian, were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him or her were of his own. But they had everything in common. 
the word common there is the Greek word koina, which is the same root as the word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. So what's being talked about here in verse 32 is a sort of spiritual unity, heart and soul, that is being expressed in a collective mindset. Everything they had, they sensed was not just their own, but belonged to others, that, that was then enacted in radical generosity. So they gave of what they had to meet the needs of others. Verse 34 and 35 pick up on this theme again. There was not a needy person among this Christian group. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, what we see being engendered here by the Spirit of God is something really unique. It's something different, both from the spirit of Marxism and the spirit of capitalism, if I can be so bold as to put it that way. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, Marxism, um, one of the pieces of Marxism, if you like read the Communist Manifesto, is that it, it seeks to abolish any sense of personal property. The personal one might say is in a sense sacrificed for the sake of the good of the communal. But here we actually see a different dynamic at work. People actually own property and they give of it voluntarily. It's not taken from them. They choose to sell it and give. And the fact that there is personal ownership is once again highlighted in chapter 5, verse 4. You know, they say, while it remained unsold, did, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? So on the one hand, there is personal property. Yet on the other hand, this passage pushes against part of capitalism. Capitalism tends to favor the development of individual capital and fortune without necessarily having an inherent responsibility to the community, especially the poor and the marginalized. So like people can easily get left out. And so what can happen in capitalism is that the communal can be sacrificed for the sake of the individual, whereas in Marxism, the individual can be sacrificed for the sake of the communal. But what we hear and see in this passage is that possessions, personal possessions, are seen as a gift from God to be stewarded for the sake of others, especially those in need, for the common good. So the spirit of God is engendering in the early Christian community something that differs from the spirit of Marxism and something that differs from the spirit of capitalism. And this is a really fascinating thing to enter into this relationship between the personal and the communal in the early Christian community. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves in, in this day and age, especially in Southern California, 21st century, so many churches to choose from, like it's your flavor of the day, you know? What can often happen in our hearts, and I can sense this in my own sometimes, is like we start with I have particular needs as an individual, and then I ask the question, how can a church or a particular community meet my needs as an individual or not? So I start with my individual needs, and that determines how I relate to the church and to the community, and that can so easily slip into this sense of spiritual consumerism. But here we see the, the early Christians moving in the opposite direction under the power of the Holy Spirit. They start with the community. What are the needs of the community? Who's really in need? And how? And then they ask the question, how can I personally, based on what God has given me, meet the needs of the community so that it will flourish and thrive? And so it works in the opposite direction. It starts with the communal and acts, asks, how can I as a person bless this community? And this taps into this wider biblical ethic of a communally oriented personal ethic. 
And it taps into this larger vision of what the kingdom of God is all about in the world. When we get to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, what we discover is that the kingdom of God is moving towards this heavenly reality of a multi-ethnic community that is worshiping the throne and, and God's holiness and power and love as a community. Not just a random individuals that happen to be sitting next to each other but as a people who have been formed together in love. And so what we discover in verses 32 to 37 of our passage is that the Spirit of God is generating a community of radical generosity in the world who are unique because they do not view their possessions as simply the product of their own hard work, but as a gift from God to be stewarded for the sake of others. Now, the practical question is, like, what does this actually mean on the ground? <laughs> like, what, is, what does this actually look like on the ground? That, that sounds great. And I think we have to ask that question, like, what does this look like for, e for each one of us personally in our own lives? And especially living in Orange County, because I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us are the ones that own the houses and own the land, or who have been blessed uh, richly by God with financial means. And now the book of Acts is not intending for this passage to be fully prescriptive. Like this is what people in every time and every place have to do. We have to listen to the spirit in these matters. But I think there's a couple of practical things that, that can be said. I think this passage is an invitation to be generous with whatever we do have. To be generous with whatever we do have. So I, I don't think it's saying that like Christians can't own homes or cars or even second homes and second cars, for example. <laughs> I think what it is saying is it's how do you use those things as a gift, not only for yourself, but for the sake of others? How do you steward them? Like, do you recognize that, that the fact that you have this, this gift is a, is a gift from God for the sake of others? So, for example, I've known lots of people who have owned second homes and used them profoundly generously. Not just as an opportunity for them to receive sanctuary, but they ask themselves, how can this be a sanctuary for others? How, how can this be a gift to others? Who couldn't afford to go on vacation, how could this be a gift to them? Who, who need rest in their lives, how could they find rest in this place? So I think this passage can be an invitation for us to be generous with what we have been given, seeing it not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And then I think a second thing is, is that maybe this passage is inviting us to exactly what it's describing. Maybe for some of us, what the Spirit of God is actually calling us to and what we actually need to consider is if there are needs in the community, maybe we're being invited to sell a piece of property. Maybe we're being invited to sell uh, or to downsize um, Maybe we're being invited to choose to go on one vacation and, instead of two so that we can use some of the means to bless those and fulfill the needs of others. Now, that may sound really intense to us, but, but I just think that's what we actually see happening in the book of Acts. And it's not meant to be prescriptive for everyone, it, but it's saying that the Spirit of God has and can and does move in this way, creating hearts of radical generosity in the people of God. And so we have to ask, is the Spirit of God moving in this way in us, in this time, in me personally? 
Now, at this point, people often ask, like, okay, well, how much is required? <laughs> I, I want a percentage. I, I, what's necessary? Um, how do I know that I'm checking my generosity giving box? But so often, those questions are often missing the heart of this passage. That generosity is not, not something that's forced out of us but it's something that naturally flows out of our lives when we've experienced the generosity of God. We freely, not forced, want to meet the needs of others. And I think this is the case because it taps into one of these deep realities of the gospel, that God was not forced to come to humanity to redeem us. His hand was not forced. He came freely out of the radical generosity and deep love of his own heart to meet our needs precisely when we were poor. He gave up the riches of heaven to come to earth so that we might become rich in him. And so what's being tapped into here is something that is profoundly basic to the logic and the calculus of the gospel. That precisely where it is not necessary we live out radical generosity to imitate the radical generosity of God. And it's in this way that we say to the world, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And you want to know why? Because if Jesus wasn't risen, then like who in the world would possibly live this way? Who in the world would possibly live this way? In the Anglican spiritual heritage, and I, I'll end here, there's a veritable tradition of developing a personal rule of life from time to time. They say this is a helpful thing to do. Not to be rigid, but, but to bring healthy focus and maturation to life in its different ages and stages. And this shows up in the Book of Common Prayer, at least one of the ones that I have on page 55. And it suggests six areas of life to consider that can be broken down into kind of worship, formation, and mission. So just want to read these. It says, every Christian man or woman should from time to time frame for themselves a, a, a rule of life in accordance with the gospel, helping them to live out the gospel in the day-to-day. -day. And it says, first, begin with worship. Consider the regularity of your attendance at public worship and especially at Holy Communion. And then second, it says, then think about formation. Consider the practice of private prayer and Bible reading and self-discipline and how it is that you bring the teaching and the example of Christ into your everyday work, in your everyday life, in your everyday relationships. And then third, and this taps into what our, our reading in Acts is about today, it, it says, consider mission, worship formation mission. Consider the boldness of your spoken faith about Christ. Consider your personal service to the church and to the community. And then consider offering up money according to your means for the support of the work of the church at home and overseas. So what we're discovering is that when hostility comes towards the church, when the culture does not want the church to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and the peeling power that comes in his name and in his name alone, the church does not remain silent. The church does not shrink back. The church does not become cynical and jaded. The, the church does not uh, uh, spew hate towards the world and judgment. The church prays, just simply prays in light of God's power, that it would be able to speak the truth with clarity and boldness, and that God's healing power would be ushered into the world. And then the church lives out a life of radical 
financial and material generosity like the world has never seen before. And it causes the world to ask, how in the world is this possible if Jesus is not risen indeed? So my brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.